One of the most well-known revivals that took place in the north of Ireland was called the Six, Six Mile Water Revival. It happened in 1625 when, when many people uh, turned to Christ. It took place in County Antrim and began through the preaching of a minister called James Glendinning. Glendinning was a bit of an eccentric character. Uh, the last thing that we hear about him is that he, he went off to look for the seven churches of Asia. But some years before that, the revival began as he preached about the law of God. Um, by the power of God's spirit, uh, the people's eyes were opened to their sinfulness. And many cried out, uh, as a Philippian jailer once did, what must I do to be saved? But Glendinning was apparently unable to apply the gospel to their sin-burdened hearts. He could awaken them to their sin uh, with the help of God's Spirit, but he couldn't show them the way to forgiveness through Jesus. He could preach the law, but not the gospel. But in God's providence, John Knox's grandson, Josiah Welsh, had recently arrived in Ireland. Uh, and Welsh was able to do what Glendinning couldn't and lead people to faith in Jesus. But just imagine what it would have been like before the second preacher arrived. Imagine what it would have been like to have been hearing the law, uh, to be confronted with your sin uh, and to be terrified, to have your, your eyes open to your sin but not to hear the gospel. Imagine what it would have been like to hear the bad news but not to hear the good news. And there is a sense in which that's where Joseph's brothers are in, in this chapter and indeed in the next chapter as well. It's a few weeks now since we looked at chapter 42 but in the previous chapter we do see a big change in the brothers as God begins to work in their lives. They arrive in Egypt to buy grain, claiming in verse 11, we are honest men. But when Joseph leaves them in custody for three days, they finally talk about something that they have avoided talking about for 20 years. They finally confess to one another their sin in selling their brother into slavery. And they say in verse 21 of the last chapter, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother. For 20 years they, they've ignored it, they've tried to blank it out, but, but now, two decades later, they look back and they say, Truly we are guilty. Not, oh it happened a long time ago, it, it doesn't really matter. Truly we are guilty. And so the brothers leave Egypt as very different men from when they first arrived. At long last, they've seen themselves for who they really are. But they haven't yet seen Joseph for who he really is. As they leave Egypt that first time, they, they know that Joseph is the governor of Egypt, but they don't realise that he's also their brother. They don't see him as someone who they can have a restored relationship with. They see him as someone who can give them what they think they need, uh, namely grain, but not as the one who can completely transform their lives. So they've seen themselves for who they are, but they haven't yet seen Joseph for who he really is. 
And that's a place where people often find themselves on their journey to salvation. They see their sin, but they haven't yet seen the Saviour. And in fact, before we come to the Saviour, we must see ourselves as we really are. For some people, the two things happen almost at exactly the same moment. Their eyes are open, they see their sin, but almost immediately they they see the Saviour. But for others, there might be a gap of days, weeks, or, or even months. But before we can fully see who Jesus is, we need to see ourselves as we really are. Before we feel the comfort of the law, we need to feel the weight of the gospel. In the the classic Christian book, The Pilgrim's Progress, uh, the main character, Christian, would never have gone to the cross if he hadn't felt the weight of the burden on his back. The burden, of course, has been there the whole time, his whole life, but it's only as he opens the book, the Bible, that he realises it's there. And until he does realise it's there, he's happy living in the city of destruction. But the first step on the journey to the cross is realising that the burden is there. Now I'm not saying that we are to look at every brother as unsaved in these next two chapters and then every brother as being a believer by the time we get to chapter 45 and they realise who Joseph is. That's not a question that, that this chapter is addressing in so many words. But I do think that in these chapters, God is picturing for us the journey to saving faith. Maybe a journey some of you are on tonight or have recently been on. In these chapters, the brothers are on a spiritual journey and they're not quite at the destination yet. God has begun to work in their lives and for them to see themselves as sinners is is amazing progress. But we won't have have a finished picture of what salvation is like until they see Joseph for who they really for who he really is, and until they're reconciled to him. But things are already starting to change. And having started to see themselves in a new light in the last chapter, in this chapter they begin to see Joseph in a, a new light. And the big change that we see in this chapter is fear turned to feasting. We don't have, have headings tonight, uh, but, but if you want a title for the sermon, we have fear turned into feasting. And that's the, the picture of this chapter, uh, and it's a, a picture of someone uh, coming to faith in Christ. We do also see evidence in this chapter of a big transformation that has already taken place in the life of Judah. And we'll come back next time God's God willing to, to look at the change in Judah's life in more detail uh, but the big theme we want to see tonight in this chapter is is fear turning to feasting the chapter begins with the famine severe and food running out Jacob who interestingly perhaps significantly is called Israel here is refusing to let them take Benjamin with them Um, Without Benjamin, they can't buy food. Uh, 
Uh, and if, if there is a significance to Jacob being called Israel here, it's maybe ironic because he's certainly not acting like Israel. He's not acting like, like a great patriarch being called by God. Just desperately uh, self in, self-interest, trying to, trying to cling on to Benjamin, even though it's putting the family at risk. So the chapter begins with Jacob being afraid and even though his sons are, are, are trying to get him to change his mind and, and they want to go back to Egypt, no doubt they're also fearful as well. As the brothers arrive in Egypt for the second time, they would undoubtedly have been more apprehensive than they were the first time. The first time everything would have been new and fresh. It was an adventure to go to Egypt. They had money and they were going to buy grain and so they'd swap their money for the grain. They'd go home, all would be well. But the second time they come to Egypt, they have reason to be apprehensive. They're, they're coming to encounter for the second time a man who, who we know as Joseph, but to them he is Zaphenath Penea, second in command over all of Egypt. A man who's already accused them of being spies, locked them up for three days, and has been keeping one of their brothers as prisoner. And on top of all that, they had another reason to be fearful, because when they'd come the last time, and they were halfway home, they'd found that their money had been put back in their sacks. They presume that it's an oversight But perhaps it's an oversight that they'll be blamed for. They've already been accused of being spies. Maybe now they'll be accused of being thieves. And so in verse 18, when they're brought to Joseph's house, we're specifically told here that they are afraid. And their thoughts instantly turn to the money. They're brought to Joseph's house and they think, well, it must be because of the money. They come to the conclusion that Joseph plans to attack them, make them his servants, and almost laughably to seize their donkeys, as if one of the most powerful men in the world would need their donkeys. So they come fearfully, because they know that Joseph is not a man to be messed with. And although they're not guilty of of trying to steal the money they are still living with the sense of guilt that had been stirred up on their last visit yes they had confessed that guilt to one another they had started to face up to who they really were but their guilt hadn't really been dealt with obviously they couldn't ask joseph for forgiveness because they think he's dead and they clearly didn't confess their sin to jacob when they went back home So although they've begun to face up to their sin, it's still hanging over them. It hasn't actually been dealt with. It would be like someone accidentally digging up an unexploded World War II bomb. The bomb is now out in the open. What was once hidden is now out in the open, but it still needs something done about it. Uh, And as long as that bomb is sitting there and it hasn't been diffused, any other bangs that go off in the area are likely to make people a lot more jumpy. And I think that's with the brothers. Even though they're not guilty of stealing the money, they're jumpy because they have this fresh sense of guilt. Perhaps that's even you tonight. You've seen your sin. You can't ignore it anymore. But maybe you haven't yet seen the Saviour. 
So the brothers come fearfully. We're, we're, we're told that specifically. But although they come fearfully, they receive a very different reaction from what they think they'll receive. They're just waiting to be jumped on, to be made servants, to have their donkeys taken. But what are the first words they hear when they explain the situation to Joseph's steward in verse 23? The first words they hear are, Peace to you, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. The most frequent command in the Bible. And in a way, the steward here is a bit like a minister of the gospel. The steward here represents Joseph. He speaks for Joseph. And what does he do? Well, he speaks peace to Joseph's brothers. And in the same way, the minister of the gospel is called to speak on behalf of the Lord Jesus. And he is called to speak peace to those who come burdened by their sin. And if tonight you are burdened by your sin, if you've started by God's grace to face up to who you really are, that your sin isn't just the the fault of others, that it's not just the result of of upbringing, but, but it's things that you have done, that you are personally responsible for, Well, if you come tonight with that sense of burden and guilt, my job is not to leave you burdened and trembling tonight, but my job is to point you to Christ and to say that if you will come to God through him, then his words to you will be the exact same as the words on the page here. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Or perhaps you are a believer in Jesus Christ tonight, but you come frustrated, bowed down and ashamed because of some recent sin. You've confessed it to God, but you can't help but think that God is going to look at you differently until you can string together a few weeks of better obedience. But what does he say to you tonight? He says, peace to you do not be afraid if you have confessed that sin he says peace to you do not be afraid and if you're thinking that's all very well but first I need to pay for my sin with obedience yes I know he's going to forgive me but but I, I really I, 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 I owe him and I need to pay for that sin with obedience what will I say to you as Christ's representative Well, what what I'll say to you tonight comes from verse 23 as well. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. He has received your payment. What you owe to God has been paid in full. There's nothing you can add to it. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. Jesus has paid the price for you. He has stored up a a treasury of righteousness and that treasure has been put in your account. All you have to do is accept the gift and keep on repenting and believing because the price has been paid for you. So I have good news for you tonight that the price has been paid for you. 
But there's more. Because what is the Bible's ultimate picture of salvation? What is the final destination that the Bible pictures for us as believers? Is it just having sins forgiven and that's where it stops? Well, the forgiveness of sins is certainly where it starts. That is the foundation stone. That is the basis for everything that follows. But God doesn't forgive our sins as an end in itself. God doesn't forgive our sins as an end in itself. Rather, the goal of salvation is about us being brought back into God's presence. Uh, It ties in with what we were thinking about this morning. That that is the big picture of the Bible. Uh, Adam and Eve, they start off in God's presence. They're driven out from God's presence. Uh, But by the end of the Bible, they're back. Uh, Humanity is back in God's presence. Our sin, it leads to us being put out of God's presence. That is the story of human history whether it's Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden whether it's Israel being kicked out of the promised land sin leads to us being cast out of God's presence but salvation is so that we can be brought back into God's presence and the ultimate picture of that at the very end of the Bible is the marriage supper of the Lamb us sitting around the table with our Saviour and our fellow believers And that's what's pictured for us here. They come fearful, but words of peace are spoken over them. And then verse 25, they're told to wait for Joseph coming. Why? For they heard that they should eat bread there. And brothers and sisters, does that not picture us on earth? Waiting for our Lord's coming back. Because when he does, we will eat bread with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we have a particular reminder of that each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because as we eat bread with him on earth, it is a reminder that one day we will do so in heaven. And when he comes, we will eat bread there. And each time we eat it here, we proclaim his death until he comes. So sitting around the Lord's table, it's not some add-on to the Christian life. It's not just for those who are especially committed, but it's a picture of what it is to be a Christian, of being brought back into fellowship with God through Christ. At a time of famine, Joseph and his brothers are feasting. And at a time when so many around us are hungering for God, but looking in the wrong places, By his grace we get to sit down and eat with him. And there is no shortage at his table. We we won't come to him and leave unsatisfied. Because he says to us, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Something else to notice about the brothers sitting down at Joseph's table is that it clearly happens by divine initiative. In other words, it's God's plan, not theirs. Think of how the brothers would have felt in verse 33 when they find themselves apparently randomly sitting from the oldest to the youngest. 
For them, the only explanation for that arrangement would be that God is at work. And even though we know that, that actually Joseph has arranged this all, it's still true that God being at work explains it. The fact that these 11 brothers have ended up in Joseph's presence in Egypt uh, 20 years after they think that they've killed him, it is due to God being at work. There is no other explanation for it. We see God's providence here. We also see God's providence in this chapter in ways that the brothers would have been unaware of as they're sitting at the table, arranged according to age. They would have been thinking that God is at work here. But there are other ways that God is at work in this chapter that, that they wouldn't have noticed. But I'm sure that they would have thought of later and realized. Think back to Joseph when we first met him. How is he described in that first chapter, Genesis 37? This dreamer. Here comes this dreamer. And what dreams did that dreamer dream? Boys and girls, do you remember Joseph's dreams? He dreamed about his brother's sheaves bowing down to his sheaf. He dreamed about the sun, moon and stars bowing down to, down to him. His father, his mother and his eleven brothers bowing down before him. And look what happens here in verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. Or verse 28, and they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. The dreams being fulfilled. Notice as well in verse 28, how did they describe Jacob? They described Jacob as your servant. What had Jacob said all those years before uh, as he rebuked Joseph? He said, what is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow themselves down to the ground before you? But now Jacob is described as Joseph's servant. So the events of this chapter take place at God's initiative. And the brothers would have had a sense of that as they gathered round the table. And we too, when we sit at the Lord's table, surely we should have a sense that this is something that God has done. There is an idea among many evangelicals about the sacraments that they're about me showing my commitment to God. That, that, that baptism, the Lord's Supper, they're what I do to show how dedicated I am to God. But actually that's to get them back to front. They're not about our commitment to God, but about God's commitment to us. And so at the Lord's table, it's not about taking our faith up a notch. It's about the gracious feast that God has laid on for the weakest believers as well as the strongest. And as we sit there with a, a diverse group of people who naturally we might not have a lot in common with, the only explanation can be that God has brought us together. Now think of that next time you sit at the Lord's table, that it, that it is just as mind-blowing that you are sitting there as it is here when, when the 11 brothers are arranged in age order. And so it's a, it's a glorious picture of God being at work. 
Now, as I said in the beginning, this isn't the end of the story. This is just a foretaste for the brothers of what will one day happen. What happens on this day falls short of that, particularly in the fact that Joseph doesn't eat with them. Not, I'm sure, because he doesn't want to, but because he hasn't yet revealed himself to them. Culturally, it was an abomination for an Egyptian to eat with people from other races. Uh, That's well attested from other sources. It it wasn't just uh, with with Hebrews. And as far as everyone else is concerned, Joseph is an Egyptian. And until the eleven realise that he's their brother, eating with him is out of the question. Because without that relationship, it would have been presumption for them to eat at the same table as him. And in the same way, it would be presumption for someone to come to the Lord's table unless they had a relationship with the Lord Jesus. But once we're adopted into God's family, once Jesus Christ becomes our elder brother, then we can sit at the family table. But not before. So as much as this chapter points us forward to something glorious, it also reminds us that we're not quite there yet. There is still distance between Joseph and his brothers. And in fact, while the big picture of this chapter is about Joseph pointing us to Jesus, there are some contrasts between Joseph and Jesus here. Notice in verse 24 that when the men are brought into Joseph's house, uh, they're given water and it says they washed their feet. Uh, nothing unusual about, about that. Uh, we certainly wouldn't expect Joseph to. Why would an important ruler like Joseph uh, wash the feet of people who were far beneath him and so they're left to do it themselves? Absolutely unremarkable. We wouldn't even give those words a second glance. Other than the fact that we know that one day a far greater ruler than Joseph came. But he did wash the feet of people who were were so much further beneath him than Joseph's brothers were below Joseph. The Lord Jesus washed the feet of those who were infinitely below him. He was higher than Joseph and yet he stooped much lower. And that shows his heart for us tonight. So Joseph is not Jesus. He doesn't wash his brother's feet. Joseph also shows the old sin of favouritism here. Verse 34. He gives Benjamin five times as much as any of the rest of them. Now some think that this was actually just Joseph testing his brother's He's showing favoritism here to Benjamin to see if they'll react jealously. Jealously uh, that in the next chapter, when the cup is found in Benjamin's sack, they'll say, "Well, just, just, just leave him." I think that that's quite a, an elaborate uh, conclusion. I, I think, in light of the earlier verses in the chapter, the natural way to read it is that this is just an overflow of Joseph's affection for his brother. I think we can understand that affection Joseph has for Benjamin in verses 29 and 30. After all, they were full brothers unlike the rest. But favouritism has been so toxic in this family 
just think of how it's shown itself down through the years in Isaac and Rebekah each having a favourite son between Jacob and Esau then in Jacob having a favourite wife and then Jacob showing favouritism to Joseph by giving him a special coat so against that background giving Benjamin five times as much as anyone else it probably isn't the wisest thing for Joseph to do And then the closing words of the chapter at least raise the question as to whether Joseph and his brothers drank to the point of being drunk. Though I don't think we actually have to reach that conclusion. Yes, the normal word here for drunkenness is used. It usually means drunkenness. But there is one other place where it most likely just means drinking to your fill and being satisfied as the great Hebrew scholars Kylan Delich put it in a previous century, it means here that they were perfectly satisfied with what they ate and drank, not that they were intoxicated. So we can't tell for sure by looking at the word in and of itself, it's used in both ways, but from the character of Joseph, I think we do need to give him the benefit of the doubt here. But what we, what we can say for sure here is that in Joseph's house, there's nothing lacking no one is going to go hungry or thirsty there may be famine all around but in joseph's house there will be a feast and how different that is to the brothers expectations they thought they were going to be made servants they thought their precious donkeys were going to be taken from them and in a way does that not actually picture the person and maybe this once was you who is hesitant about coming to christ because they just think about becoming a Christian in terms of what they're going to have to give up. The brothers' concern about their donkeys in this chapter is so silly in light of Joseph's riches. He's going to give them so much and they're worried about the possibility that he would take their donkeys. But in the same way, people put off becoming a Christian because they think, well, if I become a Christian, I'm going to have to give up this, this and this. But as the brothers are feasting, do you think that they're thinking about the donkeys? And in the same way, once we actually become Christians, God changes our desires. The things that we thought were all important, the things that that we really, really didn't want to have to give up, they suddenly become a lot less important. The things that we once thought were going to be taken from us, we, we lose interest in them. We stop doing them off our own bat because our new hearts have new desires. The things we once thought were all important, the things we once thought we couldn't give up, they fade into the background. And so as we finish this chapter, the brothers still have much to learn. They are on a journey. And maybe you feel like that too this evening, that that you still have have so much to learn. But, But if you feel like that this evening, focus on what you do know, not on what you don't know. Be like the man who is healed by Jesus and he's questioned about it by the religious authorities and he can't answer many of their questions but he says to them, but this one thing I do know that once I was blind but now I see. This one thing I do know, once I was blind but now I see. And the one thing that the brothers do know is that coming to Joseph has turned their fear into feasting. Yes, more challenges 
are ahead of them as they are for us as well. But they have encountered someone who could turn their sorrow to joy, their fear into feasting, and life would never be the same again. Amen. Well, let's praise now the God who turns fear into feasting by turning from Psalm 30, turning to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. It's on page 73, singing from verse 15. So page 73, down at the bottom, page, uh, verse number 15, uh, singing through to verse 19 over the page. Uh, but noticing especially the last two lines of verse 15. And in the days of famine, then they satisfied it will be. Uh, doesn't that perfectly describe Joseph's brothers here? That in the days of famine, they are satisfied. And that will describe us as well. In a, a day when so many people around us have an unfulfilled spiritual hunger, we are satisfied. And it points us forward to the day when all our longings and our desires will be fully and finally fulfilled. Verse 19 over the page, uh, this is, is another version of the psalm, the boys and girls sing the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. That though he, he falls, he will not be cast down. But why will he not be cast down even if he falls? Because ultimately it doesn't depend on him. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. So Psalm 37, praising the God who satisfies us in famine, praising the God who, who puts the riches of Christ to our account. Verses 15 to 19 will stand to sing.